Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Last week, we discussed the final years of Clothar, along with his wives and their sons. With the deaths of Clothar and Kram, the stage is set for yet another division of the kingdom four ways, and yet another series of civil wars between brothers, in episode 11, right back where we started. In this episode, we're going to deal with the civil war, the changes the competing factions in Francia had experienced, and properly introduce the four new kings. Unlike his father, Clothar doesn't seem to have made concrete plans about the succession. There are a few possible reasons for this. First, Clothar was probably being pulled multiple ways. Ingund and her sons would have been campaigning hard for a division of the kingdom, along with some of the aristocracy and church outside of the main power centres. Aragund, however, would have been in Clothar's ear, constantly trying to convince him to leave it all to her son Chilperic, his youngest and possibly favourite son. Second, unlike his father, Clothar did not have much time to settle things at the end of his reign. Clovis had spent his last few years in relative peace, mopping up the last vestiges of independent power in the realm, and planning for the future of his newly conquered realm. Clothar, on the other hand, had to spend his last years juggling rebellions, disobedient sons, and integrating the kingdoms of Theudebald and Childebert. These had been independent seats of power for decades, and Clothar would have had a lot of work on his hands soothing previously important nobles and administering his new cities. There was less than three years between the death of Childebert and the death of Clothar, and most of that time was spent fighting Kram and then doing penance in Tur for his son's murder. Third, it is worth noting Clothar's character as well. What do we know about Clothar? He was power-hungry, arrogant, and brutal above all else. When he wanted something, he took it. And when he couldn't just take it, he schemed and planned, sometimes for decades, waiting for his chance to strike. He was obsessive, single-minded, and ambitious. His treatment of his wives and family does not suggest any strong paternal instincts. It seems entirely possible that he simply did not care what happened after his death. By the end of his life, he was a tired, sad, broken-down old man, haunted by the suspicion he was weighed down by too much sin to ascend to heaven. Why not let his young and ambitious wives and sons sort out what happened next? He had never been one to care about anyone but himself anyway. So, perhaps a little predictably, a power vacuum would develop soon after his death. His sons took his body to his original seat of Soissons for an elaborate funeral. He was buried in the church of St. Medard, the same Medard who years before had helped free Radagund from his grasp. After his burial, it appears events moved rather quickly. Remember, the four kings who fought this conflict were the same who ruled as Gregory was writing his histories. He was first a friend and ally of Sigebert and his wife Brunhild, before he found himself in the realm of Chilperic and his wife Fredegund, both of whom 
would eventually earn Gregory's hatred. Because this initial civil war involved all the main parties, Gregory was likely not comfortable talking about it in detail, which is why his account is so sparse. He notes that Chilperic seized his father's treasury, seized Paris, tried to bribe the aristocracy to back him, but was forced out by his half-brothers and forced to divide the kingdom between them. But there is a lot to unpack in these few lines. Chilperic, likely having been prepped by his ambitious mother Aragund, seems to have moved faster than any of his brothers. He was probably able to move so quickly and seize the treasury because he and his mother had more support in court, and thus more support in the immediate area. This is probably also why he was able to seize Paris. With his allies in Clothar's court, his father's massive treasury, his father's favourite wife, and the rich seat of Paris, Chilperic was in a prime position to implement his will on the realm. Now, there are two obvious questions. Why didn't the sons of England try and stop Chilperic from doing these things? And, with these advantages, why did he eventually lose to his older half-brothers? Well, to answer these things, we have to go on a quick tangent about the aristocracy. It has now been decades since the conquests of Clovis, and things have changed in this time. While the kings have been warring and bickering, the day-to-day business of running a kingdom has begun to coalesce. Don't get me wrong, the Franks were still far from competent administrators. But something had to be done to govern the population and extract enough wealth to pay for the king's adventures. In these decades, things had begun to shift. The Frankish aristocracy had gone from an odd collection of war leaders and local rulers to an odd collection of court followers and local officials. Their roles were still vague, and there were still few rules, and everything was mostly a series of hot fixes on issues. But the Franks were beginning to live in and administer the lands they had conquered. In the same vein, The Gallo-Roman landowners and clergy had come to terms with Frankish rule, and they also increasingly demanded attention, as the Frankish kings had gone from pagan barbarians threatening to loot their villas and churches, to repositories of wealth and power whose patronage was highly coveted. Thus, both the Franks and the Gallo-Romans, and even other conquered groups like the Burgundians, coveted kingly attention. The Franks needed it to ensure important positions and the income that came with it. The Gallo-Romans needed it to protect their lands from greedy Frankish lords and to enrich the church which they still controlled. Other groups needed it to ensure their rights, protect them from outside attack, and a plethora of other reasons. The Merovingian right to rule was still enforced by the sword, but now they also needed to, you know, rule. Balancing the needs of these different groups was a key aspect of Merovingian kingship in this period. Our old friend, historian Helmut Reimers, illustrates the extent to which the Merovingians went with the example of the title Rex Francorum, meaning King of the Franks. All of these kings are known as this today, 
but at the time, the kings themselves avoided using the title. This was entirely on purpose. The kings, as Reimitz explains, knew the title would confer too much power on their Frankish subjects. They were Franks, of course, but it was important for the stability of the realm that they maintain what Reimitz calls an equidistant position between the different ethnic and social groups of the realm. The king had to remain aloof from each individual group, including the Franks, so as to appear both above them and not biased in his decision-making. We will discuss this more in future episodes, but it is this distance between the king and the competing factions of Frankia that allowed ambitious queens so much power as they were among the few who had easy access to the king. Similarly, it is the restructuring of the system after the death of Brunhild that allows us to see the transition between the two halves of the Merovingian period. But more on that later. So, why were the sons of Ingund unable to stop Chilperic's immediate consolidation of power? Well, it seems most likely that Aragund had been wielding her position of favourite queen for years to build strong allies and distribute patronage to ensure the loyalty of those at Clothar's court. In the immediate aftermath of his death, it was these men who would control access to his centres of power, his money, and the troops he had on hand. They were the most influential people because they were closest to the king. So, Chilperic and Aragorn can be forgiven for thinking that their support would be enough to establish control of the kingdom. But, this was not true. Clothar's favourites might have had his ear, but it was the old man's personal prestige and power that kept the realm together. They were feeding off his power, not the other way around. Once you left the immediate vicinity of the court, it was the landowners, the local nobility, and the church that held the power. They had been kept in line by Clothar, but now the old king was gone, and they weren't about to let an untested boy claim the whole kingdom. Remember, all of the powerful groups in the realm wanted the close attention of a king. It didn't really matter what king, since Merovingian power was still undisputed, really any king with two brain cells to rub together would do. But there were too many who wanted a king's attention. The realm was too big and too diverse, and communication and travel was too slow for one king to administer the whole realm effectively. Clothar might have ruled in name, but in practice, he would have had to send people out to resolve disputes, enforce laws and taxes, and generally show their face to maintain loyalty to the central authority. The most obvious men for the job were his adult sons. Placing too much power in the hands of a non-Merovingian would have been problematic, so Charibert, Guntram, and Sigebert would have been travelling the realm on behalf of their father for years. This is not necessarily a new formula. We've seen various Merovingian kings dispatch their sons to solve issues before, all the way back to Clovis himself. Only last episode, we saw Clothar dispatch Kram to govern Clermont, 
and you can bet the sons of England would have been just as eager to build power bases for themselves. So, Chilperic seizes Paris and the treasury and control of the court. But authority wasn't centralised in the court, it was centralised in the person of Clothar and had been built up over decades. The sons of Ingun scatter, leaving for their bases of support out in the provinces, knowing Chilperic has the short-term advantage. But Chilperic is not stupid, and he begins using the treasury to offer bribes, hoping this will strip his half-brothers of support. Clovis had shown the effectiveness of this strategy, as had Theudebert in his conflict with Childebert and Clothar, but times have changed. The nobles knew that with only one king, they would be constantly competing for attention and would likely fail to obtain the kingly support they needed. With four kings, however, they would have a much better shot. This is why the sons of England triumphed. The strength of the provinces coalesced around them and they moved on Paris, easily unseating their half-brother. They then stood in a position to divide the kingdom however they liked. They were allies for the moment, but it didn't necessarily mean that they trusted each other in the long term. So the best and easiest thing to do was to split the kingdom along exactly the same lines as before. The eldest by far, Charibert, was entrusted with Paris. This was likely to keep it out of Chilperic's hands, as he might have still had some supporters in the city, so the authority of the eldest Merovingian would have helped quash any potential sedition. Charibert was already nearing 50, and had already proven himself to not be much of a warrior, so placing him in the powerful former seat of Childebert was less of a threat than one of the younger, more ambitious brothers. Charibert will sit comfortably in his rich seat until his death, and his only significant appearances in our narrative will be in discussing his problems with his wives, which we will do next week. Next eldest is Guntram. Good King Guntram, as he will later be known thanks to Gregory, inherited Orléans, the former seat of Clodomer. In the time of Clodomer, this was a seat on the front line, as it was closest to the Burgundians. Now, it was far from the action, very far. Like Charibert, we have already seen that Guntram wasn't much of a military man. If even half of what Gregory claims is true, however, he was a good king and would prove a strong moral influence on the Merovingians. But he is not without his controversies, as we will soon see. Being placed furthest to the south, however, meant he slowly got pulled further and further away from the centres of Frankish power in the north and northeast. By the end of his reign, he was mostly focused on the needs of the Burgundian nobility and the rich lands of the area that formed the new core of his realm. Sigebert is next. Youngest son of England, he seems to have almost single-handedly inherited all of the martial spirit and skill of his forefathers. While Charibert and Guntram were content to sit and administer their rich lands, Sigebert took Theuderic's old seat of Rheim and followed in his uncle's footsteps 
spending a large amount of time campaigning on the borders of Frankish territory. It is worth noting that Sigebert initially controlled Gregory's city of Tours as well, and Gregory ascended to his bishopric with his court's support. This means that we have to take Gregory's heroic depiction of Sigebert with a grain or two of salt, but he does seem to have been the most active and capable military man of the four kings. Plus, his position in Rheim was important for its proximity to Chilperic. In Soissons, the former seat of Clothar, Chilperic stewed. He had failed in his audacious bid for the realm, and had been left with greatly reduced influence. Soissons was a powerful seat, but he and his mother had been planning their bid for years. Now, the 22-year-old king was left somewhat trapped. Only 60 kilometers to the east was the capable and warlike Sigebert, no doubt keeping a watchful eye on his slippery half-brother. To the west, aging Charibert held Paris and the rich lands around it, which Chilperic felt were rightly his. He seems to have already begun building a reputation as a schemer thanks to his actions after Clothar's death. In time, he would earn this slimy image in full, helped along greatly by Gregory's unflattering depiction of his most hated king. Chilperic will fill the role Childebert had vacated, but with more success than his uncle ever enjoyed. He would scheme and stab at any exposed back he could see. He was ambitious and lusted for power, but before he could do anything, he knew he had to remove the looming shadow of Sigebert, only four years his senior, but already acting like a senior king. It wouldn't take long for things to escalate again, as Chilperic seized any opportunity he could. It is the rivalry between Chilperic and Sigebert, and later their wives and sons, that would dominate the following period. So, that was the reality when the dust had settled. Chilperic's bid for sole rule had failed. Each of the kings had taken realms according to their personal preferences, except for Chilperic, of course. And we are back to where we started after the death of Clovis. Four brothers ruling four kingdoms from the same four cities at the start, and each one uneasily looking at one another. The stage is set for yet another round of bloodletting to determine who will come out on top, but this time with new twists. This generation of kings would prove less warlike, but more prone to intrigue, and the increasingly settled nature of Merovingian rule would force important questions to the fore. From where did Merovingian authority derive? Who held more power, the church or the aristocracy? What was the role of the law? All of these questions and more will face dramatic reveals as the realm begins to shift from a series of warlike foreign leaders to settled, civilized kings competing for influence, even as their subjects compete with one another as well. Merovingian rule may be more settled, but it will be no less dramatic. Next week, we're going to indulge in a few more of Gregory's gossipy stories about the king's messy love lives, which for us modern observers 
really tread the line between engaging and upsetting. Being in a Merovingian's bed might have been a pathway to power, but it was an awfully dangerous and unpleasant path to walk. Then, we're going to discuss yet another civil war, with Chilperic testing himself against his determined brother Sigurbert. See you then. Mm-hmm.